get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. We have seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty. At times, it can seem like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates into dehumanization. Too often, we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions, forgetting the image of God we should see in each other. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney. Uh, those words were from President, uh, former President George W. Bush uh, with remarks from uh, the Bush Institute's National Forum on Freedom, Free Markets, and Security. And uh, uh, that's that's how we want to open up this week's episode. Justin, how are you, sir? I'm doing good, brother. I'm doing really well, ready to talk a little bit of politics, a little bit of faith, a little bit of church and state and see where Christians fit in. Yeah, it it was something else this week to see. uh, Well, all of the presidents, all living former presidents kind of come back to the national stage uh, uh, to raise money for hurricane relief. So all of them were, were on a stage together. But then President Bush and uh, former President Obama uh, gave gave pretty substantial uh, remarks this week. Uh, Justin, uh, what what did you think of President President Bush kind of stepping out in such a significant way in remarks that were, uh, I think, you know, probably uh, we, we'd be naive uh, and, and President Bush would be naive to think that his remarks weren't going to be read in light of uh, in light of President Trump. But uh, oh, what did you think about uh, him speaking out so forcefully? I was I was uh, I thought it was good. Um, you know, it was timely. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And the interesting thing about those comments is, is, is you may recall, um, George W. Bush didn't say really anything or have any criticisms during the uh, Obama tenure. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of things that he disagreed with, but I think he took a very dignified stance and said, I'm going to let him be president and I'm not, not going to be on the side in the peanut gallery questioning everything that he does. And as someone who had a lot of criticism for the George W. Bush presidency, I must say that I've been a, I was impressed then when he did that for Barack Obama and I'm impressed now. But what that tells me is that his natural posture or the posture that he's chosen to take is not to criticize sitting presidents. And of course, even here, he didn't name uh, Trump, but I think Trumpism has come to such a, come to be such a divisive force. That he he was left with no choice, and even though he didn't say uh, his name directly, it was implied that this was pretty much a rebuke of Trumpism and all that Trumpism is doing to our discourse. So I'm happy that he came out and made those uh, made those comments because there was nothing that was said in there that I disagreed with. Now uh, people should know this: these comments were made, I think, at the uh, a George uh, W. Bush Institute. Uh, where he called people together in, uh, to talk about the support of democracy. But I was happy to see him make those comments. And even though I was a critic, uh, I, I do realize I think most of us would rather have Bush in office than Trump right now. So right. I got to admit. Yeah. And, 
you know, so the event was built around, uh, or at least a, a, a release at this event was a paper from Pete Weiner and Tom Melia, who are scholars with the Bush Institute. Uh, the paper is called The Spirit of Liberty at Home and in the World, uh, that was basically focused on the, uh, how to defend free market, including free and open trade, which uh, 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 President Trump has has put into question, and basic democratic values, free press, uh, freedom of assembly, uh, that kind of thing. And then, you know, Bush had this really incredible line uh, in the speech. He says, um, he, he said that, uh, well, well, first he, he has this uh, uh, section on the uh, our identity as Americans, where he says, we become the heirs of Martin Luther King Jr. by recognizing one another, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then he said this, he said, this means that people of every race, religion, and ethnicity can be fully and equally American. It means that bigotry or white supremacy in any form is blasphemy against the American creed. Um, and, and, you know, for me, this speech was riddled with everything that was good and everything that was uh, that 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 was bad or that had some negative outcomes during Bush's time in office. So the sort of unrelenting belief in freedom that you know some would say um, led us to an over uh, aggressive posture with Iraq is is also the same posture that um, that that takes uh, that, that Bush uses in this speech to defend democratic values around the around the world and you know pr quite clearly here at home. So. I thought it was a, a significant speech, and and as this Trump administration goes on, it's going to be really interesting to see, uh, you know, if if now knowing what what President Trump is going to do and be like in office, if you know as as reelection uh, comes near, it'll be interesting to see if Bush takes a more active active role in in being clear about where he stands. Yeah, I'm glad he came out to say this, and and we talked about. Maybe it wasn't the last episode, but the, the episode before last, how Trump is bringing the worst out of a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, even some on the on the left are responding to him in a way they're responding to him in kind. But something else I've seen by those who can step back and really look at the, the full landscape is that he's bringing the best out of some people, mm -hmm. too. And he's he's bringing some people together who are who are willing to say, you know what, we're both sides are better than this. And we see how he's dragging everyone down. So it's rare that I would say George W. Bush had a lot to say that I agreed with, <laughs> although I, you know, I, right. I think he's a thoughtful guy. Yeah. But when we're talking about finding common ground, right. right, one of the major things we talked about was we have to find common ground. We have more in common than we have against each other. And we're on the same team. Yeah. Those type of things you see from the good writers that you follow, the, the ones that, you, you know, I have a lot of respect for. They may criticize Trump. Uh, they may criticize the right or the left, but at the end of the day, they're really talking about, hey, we need to come together and find common ground. And I think that's really telling right now. I, I recently heard an interview with, with Van Jones, and uh, I think he's come out with a book, and I can't remember the name of the book, but where he talks about this finding common ground, he talks about how both sides can do better. And I think as Christians, we should start rewarding those people who are actually finding a way to be aspirational right, right now. Because one of the things that I see happening on both sides is when you're a commentator, uh, it is hard sometimes not to go into being an entertainer. Right. 
And some of my favorite commentators, I think, are slipping into that entertainer mode because they get more retweets. They get more follow, you know, more follows. But it's not for the better of the country. It's not for the better of the discourse. So one thing I would ask believers out there to do to start doing as of today is start rewarding those folks who are finding a way to be aspirational. It doesn't mean that you can never have any criticism. But it means at the end of the day, you're looking to find common ground with those who are in a different party than you, different ideology, different skin color. At the end of the day, a lot of the solutions out there are going to help all of us. And the the, the negative is going to hurt all of us. And we need to realize. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was interesting as well. You know, so President Obama gave his first really major public campaign event here in Virginia for Ralph Northam, who's uh, in, in a... Uh, in, in a tight race with uh, Ed Gillespie for the governor of the Commonwealth. Um, and, and it was, it was in a lot of ways, very sort of vintage uh, Obama calling for unity over division. At some point he said, you know, if you win elections by dividing people, uh, it, it'll be hard to govern them uh, uh, later. And, you know, I, I think there were some, uh, you know, that's one of those things that yes, it's easier to say when you don't have elections <laughs> that that you're in the middle right. of for sure. And and there were con- conservative critiques of, uh, of 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 Barack Obama for saying that without sort of um, acknowledging uh, any any fault with with any of any of his campaigns. And I think that's fair. But I also think it's really important that we don't get into this uh, this place where. Uh, unless you're a perfect messenger, um, which which usually means that you don't have a record at all and don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> that unless you're a perfect messenger, then you don't have a right to say anything. Um, I think the president was right when he said that, and we could have a we could have a long conversation as we've talked about on the show before about the way that uh, uh, the you know the way that all kinds of politicians divide people, but. Um, if if we're just waiting for the perfect messenger to come along, who again is is likely going to be someone who hasn't been doing it, <laughs> who hasn't been in politics, uh, th- then I think we're we're missing an opportunity to, as you said, you know, aspire to um to 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 do better. Yeah, and 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 the other point is you don't have to score points off of everything someone <laughs> said. Yeah. So 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 what we do now is we take our partisan, you know, we go to our partisan sides and anything the other somebody from the other side says, we have to score points off of, off of it. We have to show that it's hypocritical. We have to tear right. it down. No, we don't have yeah. to do that. Sometimes you can just be charitable, which I hope as Christians, we're trying to be charitable, meaning that we want to when we hear someone say something or see something, do some see someone do something. We're going to assume the yeah. best. Because most of the times when we hear somebody or we see something, we don't know their motivation. And so we're only assuming or speculating that they're doing it for certain reasons that may be negative. Well, if we have to make that assumption, we should make the assumption and give people the benefit of a doubt that they're doing it for the right reasons. Right. We do not have to score points with everything that happens. And I'm going to say it again. Christians, let, let's try to be a little more charitable and hear people out and give them the benefit of the doubt on what yeah. they're saying. Well, you know. <laughs> Uh, to, to move to our next topic, there there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, well, uh, th- there was some point scoring uh, at the Democratic National Committee's meeting uh, this week and, and probably not uh, too too much of uh, uh, given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, headline at Vanity Fair is that the DNC chair, Tom Pro- purges dissenters in surprise shakeup. And so basically what this is referring to is 
uh, Tom Perez, the chair of the DNC, has the prerogative as chair of both uh, removing existing members from important party committees um, uh, and and adding new members. Um, and he they announced some major changes uh, this week. The DNC's line is that they've made uh, these party committees uh, younger uh, and more uh, more diverse. Uh, the pushback that they've been receiving uh, from Sanders folks um, is that this was actually an effort to remove supporters of Bernie Sanders, that this was just uh, another continuation of the Sanders v. Clinton fight. And so while uh, Keith Ellison is still vice chair uh, and, and still Perez's, you know, technically right-hand man, uh, James Zogby, who was a, a longtime party member um, and a Sanders supporter, is now no longer on these uh, on these committees. Uh, the first transgender uh, member of the uh, of these committees, uh, who was a Sanders supporter, was um, was also removed, though replaced with the, with uh, another transgender, uh, uh, a new transgender member. And so, you know, ag again, we see the Democratic Party now a year out from midterm elections, and you know, obviously, a, a year, um, uh, you know, a year after uh, a pretty devastating defeat. Uh, still trying to get its own act together, and this all comes along um, along with um, reports that the the RNC, the Republican National Committee, is out raising the Democrats two to one. And so, you know, Justin, you you have a lot of experience. Uh, you were a delegate to the convention. You have a lot of experience with the party. Um, do, do you think this is all just insider baseball that isn't really going to affect the election, or or are you? Uh, do you think there's a reason to be concerned that uh, the DNC is still fighting the last uh, the last election? Yeah, I think it ha I think it may have bigger bigger implications. Um, Perez comes in just to give you a little bit of background. He comes in and he really tries to appease the Sanders uh, Ellison Ellison side of the Democratic Party, which are the Democratic Socialists. We have to recall that. It's hard to put it any other way, but the, the DNC basically almost cheated, uh, Bernie Sanders. Not that he wouldn't have, not that he would have won under otherwise, but they made it harder for him to win than they should have. And I think that's very clear. There were answers and debates that were given to Hillary Clinton and, and so yeah. on and so on. And so from the beginning, this unity was going to be hard to reach because many on the Sanders side could say, look, we had, you guys haven't been working in good faith. So I think it was already very fragile. Right. This was a, a fragile unity, even though he brings on uh, uh, Ellison and makes him his deputy uh, right. chair. OK, so you have that. But you still have these fundamental issues between the establishment Democrats. This is uh, Obama. This is Hillary Clinton. Uh, this is Perez and the Democrat socialist. And this is Bernie Sanders. Right. So you have these fundamental differences on very serious right. issues. Um, and I would say it's going to be tough because the establishment Dems, they have the money. So mo a lot of the donors, the big donors are with them and they have the infrastructure. They still control the infrastructure. And that's the that's the reason why Perez is in that position. But the Democratic Socialists really have the vision and they, they have a better articulated vision and they have more momentum. So there's a feeling with them that they may have some leverage. And you know how this goes. I mean, 
my understanding is I could be wrong is that they removed almost all the Sanders people yeah, off of right. the rules committee, right? Off of some of the major committees, all of them. That's more than just a little bit of infighting. That's, that's posturing because you think things are going to go down in a way where you need to control the party and calm them down. And they may have caught in, uh, you know, caught on to the fact that Sanders and his team yeah. was about to try to make a move or something may have been ready to go on. It's hard to say, but you touched on a, a very, something that's very interesting, which is Perez has had a hard time raising money coming into October. Uh, I think the DNC race uh, had, no, it, it had in its account, right. $7 million, right. just 7 million. The RNC, which is the Republicans had <laughs> 44 million. Um, the, the, the RNC has zero debt. The DNC has uh, $307 million worth of debt. The RNC has brought in uh, $104 million this year. The DNC has brought in $51 million. So they're behind. I, I do believe people will start giving. Uh, Politico reported that some of the donors are really just tired. After yeah. John Ossoff, you know, that was a really big and hyped up congressional race that j just fell short. And I think I think I said before it happened that I, I didn't quite understand why it was so hyped up. And I, I thought the numbers were bad and some of the polls were bad. And that's kind of what it ended up being. But that really deflated a lot of donors. And then other donors are just saying that, you know, we need to see a clearer plan. We need to see a clearer vision. We're not just going to give because you're the DNC. Yeah. Uh, so those are some of the political reports. But there's there's going to be some infighting there on, on those major fundamental issues. Something's got to give because I don't it doesn't look like the Sanders people are going to be ready to just concede any ground. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've talked quite a bit about um, maybe Democrats not making some moves um, in this Trump era when Republicans control uh, you know, uh, both houses of Congress, the White House, the vast majority of state legislatures and, and uh, governor's uh, uh, mansions. Uh, well, we've we've had a conversation about the Democratic Party not doing enough. And so, like, I, I just... It, Taking uh, stepping away from whether this is the right fight to pick, the idea that the Democratic Party, um, I, I'm not sure if devolving uh, party institution part uh, power is the best way to go. So, like one of the main things that looks like it's going to happen that the Sanders folks have been pushing is uh, reducing the influence of uh, uh, and, and and some say even eliminating the influence of superdelegates. Um, so superdelegates right. are, are basically party bigwigs who uh, are able to cast a vote in the presidential primary separate from uh, from popular vote, separate from any primary contest that they're just able to 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 cast their their vote. And, uh, you know, I think there are some valid criticisms of, of superdelegates. But, uh, you know, we've seen on the Repu on the Republican side the the kind of thing that can happen when the the party unilaterally sort of disarms um from some some of the the, the levers it has to shape presidential races and price, uh, and and shape how the how the how the, uh, how the party shapes up and so you know for me I don't think it's I, I don't think it's that um that that simple um of an issue and you know the, the idea that you know, if Ellison had won, that the Sanders folks wouldn't be asserting their their power in this situation. Um, I, I don't think that quite shapes up. I'm, this is this is hardball hardball politics. Um, and uh, Ross Douthat, 
actually has a has a column up today that is on a, a bit of a separate issue, but it's very tied to this idea of what, are the Democrats doing everything they need to do to beat um, to 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 beat Trump and contend for uh, uh, political power. Um, it, the the, the op-ed is the Democrats in their labyrinth, and and in Ross's op-ed that that came out on Sunday, he basically says what well, we've talked quite a bit about on the show, which is. Um, I, I think the most important line is uh, uh, Ross writes that uh, Democrats are willing to do just about everything to beat Trump, but reach out to his voters <laughs> and actually make a case, <laughs> make a case to his right. voters, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, a really important thing for Democrats to wrestle with. And so all of this, the, Ross's column, this DNC battle with Perez is is all about the tension of of how can the Democratic Party recover from really now a series of of startling defeats that have led us to a place where we have Donald Trump in the White House with uh, full Republican uh, control of of Congress? Yeah, and I, and I think I I believe that this you know the Democratic Party getting it itself together <clears throat> may be a little harder than people expect. And one of the reasons we've touched on this before is Obama. Right. I mean, he really left a void in the party. Some people say that he didn't do enough for the party and he kind of had his own uh, mechanism. And when he left that, you know, the party was just kind of left reeling. There's many different things, but also he had a vision. He had a big vision and articulated that big vision in a way that not too many people can articulate. He brought together a coalition that I don't know that anyone else can bring together. There are hopes that, Uh, Folks like Kamala Harris can bring it together, but I'm not convinced. Uh, There are a lot of people who expected a lot of things out of uh, President Obama. I think he did a good job, but there were some expectations that were a little too high. And and some of those people are are still uh, it's going to be hard to get them back into the political process. So it's it's going to be a long, um, a long haul, thankfully, uh, for those who are, are Democrats from that point of view. The Republicans have a lot on their end to get together as well. So it's not like they're working from uh, as strong a position as they could be. One last thing I would mention, though, is and this just kind of shows you the state of the relationship between these uh, establishment Democrats and some of these Democrat socialists is that Bernie Sanders um, at once said that he might give his email list to the party and he has still not mm. done that. So that, that as that goes, it may show you how close this true unity uh, might yeah. be. And, and you know, it, it's a uh, Clinton folks and establishment folks say this often, and I know it gets annoying, but it's also true. Uh, it, S- Sanders is not a Democrat. Um, and uh, so much of what uh, Sanders folks were, were pushing uh, through the rules committee and through these uh, through these at large positions w- was to expand access to primaries for uh for voters who aren't registered as Democrats. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that um, there are some again, there are some arguments for that, but uh, it also doesn't help a party be representative if 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 you allow people um, to influence the party who aren't even willing to associate with the party, <laughs> who aren't even, uh, you know, registered as as part of the party and just kind of come in when they feel motivated and inspired and, and uh, you know, maybe vote for the green party or invest in green party infrastructure or whatever. 
um, when when you know when that suits them, I think it's a, a it's a viable concern for a party to have that those who are speaking into the party are members of that party, and and Sanders uh, Sanders is not, um, and uh, many of Sanders supporters um, don't want to bring bring people in their their primary goal isn't to bring people into the democratic party it's to influence the party to be more like them and and that's a you know i, I there are valid reasons to be uh, uh disconcerted with allowing party infrastructure to be used for 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 that purpose and uh, that's part of the reason why i don't think this debate is going to be going away anytime anytime soon uh and so it it will be just interesting to see how how it plays out um, so with that, we're, we're actually, we wanted to, uh, wrap up this, uh, episode with, with something that, you know, may not have, uh, political implications, uh, uh, on its face, uh, but given the way that it was set up, I, I think it's, um, the political implications are clear and that's, uh, churchclarity.org. Um, and so this effort launched, uh, launched this week. Uh, Jonathan Merritt wrote about it for Religion News Service. Um, just full disclosure, I um, am, am uh, consider some of the advisors to Church Clarity as as, as friends, and so um, th these are these are folks that um, are are active in in Christian circles. And uh, that Church Clarity is basically, uh, from what we can tell so far from the from the website and from from the reporting. Um, is basically a, a pressure organization that is meant to uh, uh, pressure churches to be clear about uh, any policies the church has on LGBT and sexuality issues, and that's that's the full LGBT uh, uh, scope, so including transgender issues. Um, and their website has a rating based on affirming or non-affirming um, uh, for uh, for for churches right now, it's primarily uh, kind of mega church, uh, evangelical uh, uh, churches, and we'll, we'll see how far down they go. Um, there, there are some. Uh, it's been interesting, Justin, to see how the lines have sort of. Um, just as I've been watching social media and just been talking to people, it's been interesting to see the the, the lines on this question are uh, and the breakdown of sort of those who are kind of uh, supportive uh, or sort of uh, appreciate this effort and those who are sort of upset about it, it's not sort of a traditional conservative liberal divide. It's it's actually, uh, you find a lot of people who supported the Nashville statement saying, even if they're suspicious of this group's motives because, um, because the church clarity is explicitly an affirming organization, um, uh, they they say yeah churches should be should have clear policies, um, and then I find people with all kinds of different views on uh, on LGBT issues theologically um, uh, who who have some real concerns about it. And so, J Justin, as you saw this play out over the last week, kind of kind of what what are your thoughts? Do you think an effort like this is is helpful or destructive, or um, and how do you see something like this moving forward? I don't see how it's helpful at all, uh, to be honest. I, I don't see how it's helpful at, at all. Um, it was pitched in some way that, hey, conservatives can jump on this too because you want clarity as well. 
Well, if that's the case, I think this is probably the most obvious and worst Trojan horse that mm. I've ever seen. I think this is just a bad idea, flat out. Um, and here's here's my problems with it. It's hard for me to believe that this won't be weaponized to attack more orthodox churches. Right. Um, it, this seems like a database so that you have ready, whenever you need it, a way to come at orthodox churches because of their beliefs. Um, I clearly have a problem with yeah. that. It's hard for me to see this as a good faith effort just to be about clarity, because as they said many times, this isn't even about the theology of it. It's about so- so-called letting people know what they're getting into. Okay, I, I guess so. My second, my second issue with this is, you know, last week I talked a lot about frame the framing of issues, the framing of questions. Mm. And the way this is set up, it's already framed wrong. And and I told Christians last week or the week before that um, we need to make sure that things are framed the right way. And if they're not, we need to call it out. So the way this set this website sets things up is it already puts biblical Christians. And these are Christians. I say biblical Christians and you can use Orthodox or whatever you want to use um, to say people who you know, pretty much believe in, you know, the traditional Christian sexual and family ethic. Um, it puts them in the negative position. It puts them in the anti position. It puts them in the unaffirming position. So from the from the start of it, you're already starting off with the wrong framing, right? Because I'm I'm not unaffirming of anyone. Now there are certain beliefs that I I don't move you know I don't move forward with. But as human beings, I see the imago day in anyone. So I don't say that not necessarily I'm unaffirming. Um, so that's one thing. But I think it reduces the conversation. I think pastors should be clear. I think churches should be clear. But guess what? Different churches have different ways about going about that. Different churches don't necessarily want to put a sign up and say, you shouldn't come here if you believe this, this and this. Some churches may even want to give you the full gospel so you understand why they're taking that position. So the whole idea that you're going to pressure Christians to to make some announcement that they don't necessarily want to make or that is outside what what they do. I just don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see that being the way that Jesus came across. And so why would you force churches to come across that way? Uh, and then the other thing is, I think it uh, it reduces the conversation. It, it reduces a conversation about church and everything that people can get to church about this one issue that a certain group wants to press harder than any other. Um and, and and so it's it's drawing a line. I don't have a problem with that line being drawn, but the fact that you want to pressure people into do, pressure churches into doing something specific when you really have no authority to pressure anyone to do anything. So I don't think it's something Christians should be afraid of necessarily, but we should be uh, cautious. And there's no way in the world that I that I would participate in something like this. So for those that you of uh, those of you that do want to look at this website and do want to check it out. The, the website is itchingears.com. And, and that comes from Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 14. I'll read that for you. Uh, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. Yeah, I mean, so I I hear that I I, I um, you know, so again, I just uh, I I know 
some of the folks involved and just the, the story of, of, of their walk and obviously can't speak for everyone involved. The, the folks I know involved, I think are, are going about this um, uh, as a response to friends who have been going to churches for four or five years, uh, have the churches that have been, you know, happy to take their tithe, uh, happy to, um, you know, have them, uh, uh, participate in some aspects of the life of the community, but then sort of a, a line gets drawn, and and I, you know, I am, I empathize with that. I I will pick up on on two things he said though, which is one, the real risk of this being weaponized, and not necessarily by uh, by the folks who are involved with the site, but it it isn't. It I was it was jarring to me that the first. Uh, question on the frequently asked question uh, section uh, was why is clarity so important? And the answer was churches are unique organizations in America. They enjoy tremendous public subsidies as they are recognized by the IRS as tax exempt religious organizations. In exchange for these subsidies, churches are expected to play a vital role of serving their communities, but there is very little accountability to demonstrate that they are earning that subsidy. In fact, many churches fail to uphold the basic standards of transparency that we as a society expect from most other organizations. Well, uh, th that, is, that is extremely loaded language. So to, first of all, to call the tax exemption a subsidy is is a, a very significant um, charge. The tax exemption actually comes from the fact that uh, as as a as a nation that upholds the separation of church and state, uh, one side of that is that if if the church isn't uh, giving money to the state for its taxes, uh, then you avoid es establishment issues because obviously th th then the incentive structure is all set up so, uh, is kind of messed up. So if uh, 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 if uh you know uh catholics tithe more then the government has a sort of perverse incentive to uh to support catholic the catholic church because then folks would tithe more or any other religious background and so to sort of um to sort of frame tax exempt status um in, in this way a i think is historically inaccurate um b i think it's it's um quite quite tilted and quite loaded and quite suggestive and then see if uh, it, if this is about uh, church practice to to open up the frequently asked question section of your site and and the, and the question why is clarity so important to invoke not uh, uh, um, theological clarity or uh, the fact that the the church is the center of many people's lives but instead tax exempt status um, su suggests. Uh, 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 a hyper political and sort of a hyper political approach to this, and so you, you know, uh, I'm I'm cautioned by that. Um, there have been, uh, yeah, but, but yeah. Let yeah. me let me say this. I think we should be more than caution. And this, and I, and I understand. We talked about being charitable earlier today, but we do realize that a couple of years ago in Houston, that we had pastors who were getting their uh, sermons uh, subpoenaed or whatever. Mm -hmm because of issues with the mayor. We do see all the time uh, traditional uh, churches getting attacked for views on this specific yeah. issue. So I think we would be a little bit remiss and maybe too kind 
to act like this is in good faith, whether we know the people or not. Um, they can be fans, friends, they can be great friends, but if they made a mistake, I think it's even more incumbent upon us to let them know that they made a mistake because the way this comes off, it does not come off to me as anything but something that will be weaponized and used against certain groups. They're talking about uh, getting people's quotes and having quotes ready about what they're going to say. When you step into a, to a church, yes, they may disagree with you, but if you want to know how they feel about it, ask them. And if you step into the church, you're not there just so you can feel comfortable with everything the church is saying. So I don't care if you've been there for five, uh, five weeks or five years, ask the question and the pastor has a, a responsibility to preach in the way that he sees fit and preach in the way that the Bible's telling him to preach. So I don't think that justifies this type of website where we know it's, I mean, the, the whole thing is it's, it's pointed at mostly these mega churches, these right. big churches. Right. And really what they're trying to do is out yeah, these right. churches, right? They're trying to say, we want you to know. And it's almost as if they don't want you to enter into some of these churches, almost as if, they're worried that if you go there, you actually might like mm. it. So let let us stop you from even going into those doors. Well, yeah, yeah. And so I don't have as much of a kind interpretation interpretation of what this might be. Maybe because I don't know some of the people, but from what what I read and what you just read, it's hard for me to be um, in a position to say, ah, it's not so bad. Let's just wait and see. Especially when people are suffering and the way we see society yeah, moving yeah. on this issue. I don't think it's time for the yeah, kid right. gloves, right? So I, I think a few things on, on that. So first, I think the folks involved should make absolutely clear that not only will they are they indifferent to this information being weaponized, particularly by uh, state or governmental forces, or, you know, it, I wasn't able to find any information about how this is, this is funded, if it has funding, uh, uh, what what kind of groups were consulted as this was launched? So is this something that uh, the advocacy groups are going to leverage uh, against churches? Just how broad does the strategy and mission? Go? I mean, the database is going to well, be right, open, right? right. So um, and so, you know, uh, if uh, uh, I, I think that they should they should be uh, clear uh, uh, that their goal is uh, uh, that they they this information. Uh, first, right, is not intended, but uh, the intention is is separate from the impact, which I think is right, uh, which moves me to my second point, which is um, I, I was involved in a presidential campaign where some enterprising reporters went into a black church um, where the pastor used language that they were unfamiliar with um, uh, and took sound bites of that church to paint that church in a way that uh, its members would certainly not uh, accept the characterizations of Jeremiah Wright's church that the media had for for weeks. Um, and, and so I, I just want to be, you know, so often these kinds of things, we see people uh, un, unleash sort of tools and, and tactics uh, that they intend for for good or for what they think is good. Um, and I, I would just, um, one way to think about this is, is to think about, uh, what if, what if the Cokes funded, uh, a church database of churches that were insufficiently free market oriented or that were insufficiently patriotic and uh you you had, you had a, a database of churches that were either patriotic or unpatriotic. 
Um, and, and, and how, how would you feel about that? How do you feel about, uh, uh, churches being graded, uh, on their policies for how supportive of America they were or not? And it wouldn't be government. It would be Cokes or it would be make America great again. Um, and so I think we need to be really, really careful about just the tools and how we view how church change should happen. Um, and what kind of allies we're willing to engage with uh, to see uh, the change in church structures that uh, that folks want to be like sometimes um, that I mean, uh, well actually all the time the ends don't justify the means and so um, I, I think there's a real caution there as well um, not to be again too too sort of uh, too sort of uh, 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 soft, but there, there, there's a lot to be cautious about here, Justin. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. And, and 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 they start off the they start off the purpose of this as two pressure right. churches. That's how the purpose of this starts off. Now it's two pressure churches to be clear, whatever. But that can easily be in the way I see it moving forward is to pressure churches to be right. affirming. Um, I see that I see that is where this is going now. Before uh, folks with a more um, orthodox or traditional view on these issues before we go into our little uh, we're being persecuted, um, you know, stance. Let's understand that there, the history of this issue, how wrong we have been and how wrong we have treated people on this issue. So before we start feeling sorry for ourselves, I, that's not what I'm telling people to do. I think one of the one of the things we need to do is be honest about where we failed on this issue. Open and honest about our failures. Have we treated people um, as being just as good as uh, as us, have we treated one sin like it's so much more outrageous than everything else that goes on? If we really look at that with honesty, I think we can say, yes, we have been wrong on this issue in many ways. It doesn't necessarily change the principle. It doesn't change biblical tenets, but it does mean that we have lacked compassion and yeah. kindness. And I can say for, for many of the circles I've been around, that has been the fact. Now, that's not easy to say, but we have to have the humility to say it. And that's the only way that's going to make this conversation right. better. The pressure and all that, it's probably going to yeah. come. Uh, that's it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't run from that pressure. It's going to come, but we should be willing to stand up to that pressure. And so my only thing is when you're talking about pressuring Christians or churches into doing certain things, that's not something I'm going to stand right. by. Uh, when you use those type, those type of words, it's more, it's more than a caution to yeah. me. To me, it almost says you're not even trying to hide it and you're sending signals to those who may support that kind of thing that this is where you can mm. come. We can help you out. We're about to we're about to move forward. Either way, Christians move forward with compassion on this issue. Again, we cannot move forward just to protect ourselves. The pressure will come. All type of things will come. We have to make sure we're being um, consistent and fair to all those around us and that we're showing we love people before we even have these type of conversations or within those conversations. So let's focus on that. But, but I wouldn't give, I wouldn't give this site a pass. I think you, you got to keep your eye on it uh, because you, you know, we've said it yeah. already. It, it just seems like there's so many ways that this could become a negative and we'll just right. have to see. And you know, they're, they're, they're going to be, you know, the primary stakeholders of responsibility for, for, um, for how this information uh, and and these characterizations are are used, and so you know uh, uh, you know 
now that they're in a position where they have to steward something you know uh, just uh, just one one last thing that just you brought to mind which was um well a right so this doesn't occur in a vacuum so i think your your point that this 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 desire to pressure this desire to find clarity um c comes from uh from from great harm and so i think that's important but but the other thing that you said that um you know just a decade ago 15 years ago it's it seemed like the most uh where where churches were being pushed was to be more opaque <laughs> on these on these kinds of issues and to not right to not right. to not make uh uh questions of sexuality to be um the focus and to not um uh and, right. and to uh to sort of um uh to, to to not put these out front so you you had people saying you know when i when i go to when i go to church i don't want to um hear about the pastor's thoughts on sexuality i want to hear you know the gospel and we could dig into <laughs> into what that statement implies but you know it is it is interesting to track the trajectory of you know what was condemned just 10 15 years ago is now the thing that some some of the very same people are are pushing for it so uh you know you you really right. ought to uh you really ought to make clear uh and draw draw firm lines in the sand um uh, when again just 10 15 years ago it was do we really have to be so specific and so so uh so dogmatic about this whole thing and so um you know it's just uh it, i think it tracks with with where the conversation has gone in America and it, and it should you know there was a reason why why there were those concerns 10 15 years ago and we shouldn't we shouldn't lose lose sight lose sight of that fact so that's right. And it's a lot of people who are saying that it's a secondary issue, which I don't believe it's a secondary right. issue, but they're the same ones pushing it to right. the forefront. It uh, doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll end with this. Um, I really hate the narrative of biblical Christians versus LGBT. Yeah. I hate that narrative because, again, it reduces the conversation. Um, it, it, it makes it seem as if it's just a black and white issue and that there are no relationships in between that. And there is no expo larger explanation and reasons behind why people feel that they, the way they feel it's either love right. or hate. And that is just a false narrative. It's a completely false narrative. And I, I believe Christians should do all they can to fight against that false narrative. It is not an us against them uh, conversation. It's a conversation where we should be trying to build relationships or we should try to build understanding, should be listening. And at the end of the day, we have to stand by our convictions, but it's a much larger uh, and important conversation than we give it credit for. And I think we we play it kind of cheaply on both sides. Yeah. And I think that's a good, that's a good place to end it. I mean, look, the, 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 the world and the media environment we're in and all that is always going to rush to, put labels on things and put put you in a box put me in a box put churches in a box um and you know there's value in uh clarity there's also value um uh, in, in in not treat uh, right it seemed like the line was just uh these these aren't issues they're people and now all of a sudden it's it, 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 an entire church's approach to this can be summarized in uh, a hyphenated word. Um, and so uh, 
I really appreciate this conversation. I know this has been a conversation that many of uh, our listeners have been uh, uh, having uh, with, with with their friends and their church communities. I think you know we we need to be careful as a church when um, when there are a lot of forces and and uh, uh, groups and interests outside of the church that. Um, that, that that don't that don't share our our goals <laughs> that that don't share our vision of a church <laughs> that is led by Jesus Christ that has um that has uh, a great diversity and unity within that diversity um and so uh, uh it's important not to treat these things as sort of parochial conversations without paying attention to the fact that whatever intentions are um uh, there, there are there are uh, there are folks with other interests in mind, uh, and so uh, with that, we we covered quite a bit of territory in this episode. Um, always glad to, um, to to be be in conversation uh, at a time of such significant consequence. And so, uh, Justin, do you have any any closing thoughts? I'll just say this: Christians, be bigger than the issue in the way it's presented to you. Don't accept, don't, you don't have to accept the sides that are given to you. Your side may just be above and transcend what's been given to you. So don't be afraid to step out of those boxes and say what you really mean. And don't let anybody put you as a Christian against other people that you don't necessarily feel you're against. Um, and just, just keep that in mind. And so we have to create our own frameworks, not based on what's convenient to us, but based off a true narrative and based off the truth. Thanks. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.